Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 115 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm down here in the bunker, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How you feeling, Dave? I'm doing pretty well, Jeff. Yeah? Thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm feeling philosophical today. You're dressed kind of philosophical. Oh, yeah? You got the, you got Philosophers the, wear blazers? You got the blazer, you got the, the dress pants on. Are you on your way to somewhere? Yeah, you... I'm going to sell real estate. Oh, I nice. I was going to go with the, the gold blazer, but I went with the blue instead. <laughs> Very nice. No, right. I was teaching this morning, okay. and I, I like to you know bring a little bit of a formality yeah. to the classroom. I didn't go with a tie. Because, you know, if you wear a sport coat without a tie, it, it indicates I could be formal or I could be casual. And mm. I, I just want to leave that open. Got you. Liminal, as I might I, say. Liminal, that's right. right. I'm sartorially liminal. <laughs> yes. How about you? When you teach, it's uh, flip-flops and um, like a tie-dye shirt? It's and... not It's not quite that informal. Okay. So I'm not a tie guy. I own exactly one tie. You which, do? Which I never wear. Oh, why do and you own it then if you don't wear it? I think, it was, I, think I had to have it for some kind of formal event. Mm. And it was purchased, and it, it hangs there mockingly, right. mocking me in, in the closet. But uh, no, I'm a, I'm a pretty casual guy. But I'm yeah. not no no flip flops. No, and not even not even jeans these days. No jeans. No jeans. Oh right? wow. So maybe on a, maybe on Friday. So do you say as you as you age, you're getting a little more formal. I, I think a, a so. A little more fuddy-duddy, maybe? I'm, yeah, definitely. More, more fuddy than duddy. Hey, you kids, get off my lawn, yeah, that kind of thing. a lot of that. A lot of fist shaking and grumbling <laughs> and muttering. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I'm doing well. Yeah. I'm excited. Two weeks from today, as we were right. talking about, I am leaving for Greece. You're with, jetting off to Greece with, with my, a family. With my family. I'm going to do right. a uh, photography project there at Eleusis. I'm, I'm really excited. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm envious. I have never been to Greece in the springtime. The, uh, the violet... The violet the violet-crowned city, they call it, Athens, yes. in the springtime. Right. It should be gorgeous. Yeah, so um, they, they're saying that the uh, the flowers in the agora are starting to kind of explode and oh, bloom. incredible. And, so, and, my, and my wife, Beck, is... Uh, She's a gardener, and mm-hmm. so and she's exce- so I've never wa- I've I've never been through those gardens that are like behind the the Zapayan, right? You know, near Syntagma. Right. Yeah, and uh, so I t- I I sold the trip to her partially. Said, look, listen, they have these, these national gardens. And so yes, she's really pumped about that. Did you use the um, the Greek yogurt as a selling point too? Um, I, the, the, thick, thick like spackle. Do I put this in my mouth or fill the holes in the wall? The, the, right? Exactly. The the food in general, as you said, is selling. But what you're right that you know that the Greek yogurt you get in the tubs at yeah. at the local you know grocery mat. Nah. It's okay, but it's not the same. No, it's not. You drizzle out the honey on it oh, with, the, with yes. that big dipper. That's oh, right. Nothing like it. Yeah, it's really a great aesthetic experience. So I'm excited for you. That's going to be a great time. Yes. A great time. You know who else was fond of Greece? Who was that? Virgil. He, did he did he never went there, did he? Oh, yes, of course he did. What, what, what did he do yes, there? He, in fact, he, he died right before traveling to Greece, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's he was gonna, right. He was going to leave from Brindisi, right? Brindisium. That's and, right. That's uh, right. Brought his body back yes. and buried him, uh, unintentional alliteration, Yeah, in Naples. That's right. He there, was on there, his way to sail off to Greece. That, there is that place in Naples that is, is um, I guess, partially identified as Virgil's. Really? We don't, we don't really know. Never been there. I haven't been there either. I was, I was reading about it. Hmm. But I, speaking of Virgil's death, right. I, I realized just the other day I was, as I was looking this over is that now myself at age 52, I've yeah. outlived Virgil. Have you lived longer than Virgil? Virgil died at 51. Wow. Yeah. And you've accomplished nearly as much. Yeah, that's the part that's depressing, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, Caesar uh, thinking about Alexander and yeah. you know, thinking about, oh, that guy. Weeping at his tomb. Yes. Oh, weeping at the tomb of um, Achilles, right? Yeah. Wait a minute wait, here. We're mixing things up. Where, where, where was he when he did that? Don't, so uh, Caesar was in Troy. What? Wasn't Caesar in Troy? Are we talking about Alexander? Uh, didn't Caesar go to Alexander? Cut, cut. <laughs> Al- Alexander the Great. Yes was in Troy. Yes. Weeping at Achilles at tomb. At Achilles tomb yes. because Alexander had no Homer. That's that's to celebrate right. his exploits. That's right. That's right. So how did Julius Caesar get in this at all? Well, Caesar at Alexander's tomb um wept because he thought as much as so much that you know, Alexander had accomplished at such right. a young age, and, yes. he, and he, had, he had yet to live right. up to this. Right. So I hope someone weeps at my tomb yeah? saying, that guy owed me so much money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we should probably get down to oh, we should. brass tacks. As That's say, correct. Right? So no shout out. You nope. wanted to give a shout out to a Big Shirtless Ron, if but I'm not mistaken. I did, but I don't think the audience... Pop culture did. reference there? That I don't think anybody's going to get. No, but, probably not. So right. we move on. Yes. And what are we talking about today, Dr. Winkle? We're going to talk about the first half of Aeneid Book 11. We are closing in on the end mm. of this epic and this this, uh, this long uh, series that we've been doing on mm. Aeneid. Um, so, so no Tarzan and tradition yet. We're no, just teasing yet. the audience. Yeah, you're the one teasing about that. Mm. So, um, I'm I'm excited about. That. I'm I'm kind of waiting for you to pull the yeah. trigger on that. But uh, yeah, but uh, I'm excited about that. Well, yeah. I don't I don't think that now is the time. There will come a time. Okay. That there'll be a vine time to talk about oh, Tarzan. Man, but nice. it's not now. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, shall I do our opening quote? Yes, let's hear that. Please. All right. So this comes from an article entitled "Virgil and Heroism: Aeneid, Book 11, from one uh, Thomas Rosenmeyer. Wrote this article um, quite some time ago in the Classical Journal in 1960. All right. And he's talking about uh, particularly a character that is in Book 11. We probably won't get to her today. Okay. But Camilla, am Camilla, I right? Which I think is one of the more fascinating parts about this book. Absolutely. And I believe it's one of the figures in the Aeneid that most people think is a complete invention of Virgil. Mm. There's not a precedent for this. No, and, no mythological historical precedent for right. Camilla. And so there's a lot of mystery of, kind of why does he put her in there? And what's, right. he, what's he trying to say? And so this article is um, is kind of is talking about uh, the issues of Camilla in Book Eleven. And Rosemeyer writes in Book Eleven of the Aeneid, at a time when the crucial war between the Trojans and Bertullians is becoming more and more of a brutal reality, when the Maior Rerum Ordo is beginning to exact its full measure of trumpet calls of slaughter and deceit, Virgil pauses to introduce one of his most glittering personalities, the Volscian warrior maiden Camilla. Hmm. That's quite a sentence to get us started, isn't it? That is, that's one it's a, sentence. It's a periodic <laughs> sentence. Yep. It is. Loosely sandwiched between a concentrated dose of a, of a pathetic dido and the insubstantial expectation of Lavinia, Camilla is, one, is the one prominent lady in the epic who never establishes contact of any kind with the hero. It's not just that they never meet. She appears and she disappears, and while she's on stage, she is the protagonist. Her Aristea conceived in the model of a Homeric Aristea of, of Diomedes and Patroclus, demands both grandeur and isolation. She is an Aeschylean heroine rather than a Sophoclean one. Her role forbids the treatment which made Dido so appealing to us, the drawing of subtle threads to bind one heart to another, or at least to make two persons respond to each other and form a new unit of interest or sensibility, for better or for worse. Camilla is the most uncompromisingly solitary character in the Aeneid, a poem which glories in the, in the portrayal of complex human relationships. For even Aeneas, made lonely by the leadership thrust upon him, shows himself capable of entering into those humanizing, though always ephemeral bonds, which allow us to suffer with him rather than merely admire him. Dido and Pallas, and yes, even Akates, help Aeneas along the road of ceasing to be a cipher and becoming a man. There is no such association to relieve the starkness and the symbolic drabness of Camilla's triumph. Her loneliness is unparalleled, unless it is matched by that of Aaron's, her appointed killer. Hmm. So, what he, do you make? What do you make of that, Jeff? Well, I think he, he's puzzling over the fact that there seems to be a, a paradox here. He said, on the one hand, he finds Camilla kind of an extraordinary character. He calls yes. her what one of the most his most glittering creations or something. Like that. That's correct. But at the same time, she's completely isolated in the epic. There's mm. no grand showdown between Camilla and Aeneas. No. Or, or um. You know, any kind of grand showdown with any kind of singular um, Trojan. Right. Um, so the, the, he seems to be asking, well, why is she there? Mm -hmm. Why spend so much time in crafting this? And if we add to the fact that um, if this is Virgil's uh, a singular creation of his, right. what's he up to here? Right. So... Well, my takeaway is there's a lot of questions about okay. Camilla, right? <laughs> there are a lot of insights just in this little excerpt of the article that you read from Rosenmeyer, but it seems in places almost over-argued. Explain. It's, it's a stretch. Well, he calls her at the beginning, like you said, one of uh, Virgil's most glittering personalities, the mm -hmm. Volscian warrior, uh, warrior maid Camilla. And he references Dido, right? The concentrated dose of pathetic Dido, the insubstantial expectation of Lavinia. So those are his two points of contrast, I guess, because they're both prominent women. Yeah. So Dido takes a lot of our attention in books uh, one, two, and four. Mm -hmm. um, and then Lavinia is really a snoozer when she comes on the stage. Right. No yeah. kind of um, interest. So I guess Camilla is compared to them and she's a, a third thing. She's heroic. She's glittering. So where's the downside or the, the crux of the mystery that, that Rosenmeyer is trying to identify? 
Um, I, I mean, I see it in just that um, he's puzzling over um, her isolation. So she's the way the, that she, the significant way that she differs from a Dido is in that she doesn't really interact with anybody. We don't okay. see her as as a a romantic interest yeah. or any kind of personal interest. As you know, as he notes here, she never even encounters Aeneas himself, and she differs from Lavinia. Why? In that she's interesting and Lavinia's boring. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's I, the primary contrast. I guess so. I, I would have liked a uh, comparison with uh, like Juturna. And so yes. Juturna's his sister. I think there's another person yes. that could come. If, you, if we're talking about the women of the epic, right. you know, she has to be considered as well. What do you think he means when he says she is an Aeschylean heroine rather than a Sophoclean one? I'm not exactly sure. Hmm. Um, I mean, in that, that you know, a Sophoclean hero is one who who suffers into truth, right? right. Um, you know, rages against kind of the the uh, existential injustice of the universe. I don't Antigone. Uh, in, uh, Antigone, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, as opposed to Clytemnestra, who's a, a selfish force of nature. I suppose of? more. I mean, I think Camilla is. She's she's a she's an Amazon. You know, mm-hmm. She's a warrior. I mean, the things that she does in the epic are more in the in the the realm of of the masculine. Right. Yeah. We can't say that really of Dido or Lavinia. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that she's she is this phenomenal warrior on the battlefield makes her, you know, uh, just that alone makes her a character of a different type. Right. And so we shouldn't expect of her to be um, uh, like a Lavinia or yeah. you know, a, a queen waiting back at home. No, mm. she's a spear thrower. So here's where it's maybe a little bit over-argued. Okay. Camilla is the most uncompromisingly solitary character in the Aeneid, a poem which glories in the portrayal of complex human relationships. So to make his point, he then compares Camilla to Aeneas. Mm-hmm. So Aeneas starts out as a cipher, right. a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and turns into a complex person by virtue of his interactions with Achates, uh, his friend, Anchises, his father, Dido, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But that never happens to Camilla, so therefore she's uncompromisingly solitary. I guess I see what you're saying. Right. I think it's an unfair comparison. Right. She, I mean, she has her Aristea, she has her moment on the stage, but that's the that is the that's all we get of her. Yeah. Right? But there's no there's no build up. There's no after story. There's no backstory. There's no after story. Right. Maybe that's what he's complaining about, or maybe that's why he's identifying the uniqueness of Camilla. She comes out of nowhere. Yeah, I think I think that's that's what I would take away from this, right? Does that make her a more or less sympathetic character? Well, let, let's wait till the next episode, okay? Because I think uh, I think we're not going to get to her in the text today. But these, I think, these are key things we should probably address when we talk about part two. Fair, fair enough. All right. So as we get started, then, yep. Uh, where is the action taking us now? Well, we're, um, we're the if the listener will remember, book ten is very very bloody. Yeah, lots of battles, and so now there's piles of bodies on both mm-hmm. sides, and the deal with the belt. Right. Yes, at, right, right. At of the course. end, the male pattern baldric. <laughs> Very nice. Yes, and so yes, Turnus has killed Pallas, um, stripped him of his sword belt, and now um, it's time to uh, have a little truce mm-hmm. and allow both sides to bury their dead. Exchange of prisoners, mm-hmm. exchange of corpses. Yes, right. exactly. Right. Would you open us up? Would you read the opening lines in Latin for us? I would love to. And these are uh, the very first lines of Book Eleven. Yes, right, yes, with are. a nice Homeric uh, beginning. Really. Yep. And they go like this. Oke anin teriaser gains aurora reliquit, aine asquam quet soci istar the tempus humandis, praecipitant curraitur bateque funera mains est, vota deum primo victor salvebat et oo. I love the et oo at the yeah. end. Yeah. Dawn, right? Yes. Yes. And I, I mentioned it's Homeric, right? Because mm-hmm. the beginnings and the endings of so many books of the Iliad and Odyssey, you know, the book ends with. Um, and, you know, moist night fell down across the landscape and stars glittered out. And the next the next book begins with... Rosy-fingered dawn. Rosy-fingered dawn. Right. Protodactylus eos came yes. up over the sky. Right. As just an aside, um, the, not the last time I was in Greece, but the, I don't know, third to last time, 2014, mm-hmm. I got to go see Kefalonia, you know, yeah. way on the west side right, of the Peloponnese. Right. And I could actually see Ithaca. Right, the island of Ithaca. Yes, and um, I got to see rosy-fingered dawn that morning, and so very nice. That was kind of that's interesting. Very Homeric. Yeah, yes, it was very exactly. moving. Right. So there's that's that's the island. There's there's the place you know where he would have glimpsed the rosy-fingered. Did, rosy did dawn. you long to get over to Ithaca? It's not. I did. Place. It's not very far. No? You could almost swim across. You could swim it. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't. One could. <laughs> One could. A capable swimmer could. Yeah. yeah, many people don't even think that's the location of Homer's Ithaca. Exactly. But yeah, so. no matter. Right. I think I was reading in, in a, a commentary that I believe this is the only book of the Aeneid that begins with the rising of the sun and, mm. and ends with the setting of the sun. Mm. You have that, that Homeric frame, this is the only book 
that has both yes. of those things. Interesting. So, yep. So any make something of that or just well, variety? I, I think uh, I don't know if I want to make too much of it, this being the only example. I, I think the important thing is this is very clearly uh, another Homeric nod. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you're a teach, if one is a teacher, your teacher out there, and a student asks you a difficult question, here's a nice dodge you can employ when they say, you know, uh, Mr. So and So, Doctor So and So. Uh, Mrs. Why is this in here? You say variationis causa, variationis causa. It's for the sake of variety. There you go. It's a it's a big cop out, <laughs> but if you put it in Latin, mm. right, it sounds more impressive. And right, get you by. Exactly. It reminds me of the. I think it's a Whitman quote. It's like you know, um, do I contradict myself? You know, I am large and contain multitudes. <laughs> that's a dodge, right? Yeah, that's a dodge. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you pointed out my contradiction. Well, you know, there's lots of variety in me. That's right. That's where it's coming from. In other words, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So can you give us the Lombardo translation of uh, those opening lines? Yes. And it, then a little more? A little more, yes. Uh, Dawn left ocean and ascended the sky. Aeneas yearned to devote those hours to the burial of his dead. But as victor, he must fulfill his vows in the, first di in the day's first light. He erected the trunk of a mighty oak high on a mound and clothed the wood in the gleaming arm stripped from Mezentius. A trophy to you, O great lord of war. So remember, Mezentius, he was the father of Lausus. Lausus, right? that's right. That, 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 that killing on the battlefield that mm -hmm. seemed to kind of wake Aeneas up right. uh, a little bit. A Lausus way to die. Yeah. Oh. A trophy to you, O great lord of war. He nailed up the crest dewy with blood and the breastplate pierced a dozen times. On its left side, he bound the shield of bronze and hung from its neck the ivory sword. Mm. So that's a pretty, uh, uh, I think it's more of an elaborate ritual of of uh, on the battlefield than anything we see in the Iliad. Yes, that, for sure. So, for and this sure. is in keeping with, um, oh, so much ritual that we've seen throughout all of the books. That and how's that? How's that uh, working on you now? The ritual. You, um, you okay with it? You made peace with the notion of the, the constant proper performance of the rites, and this is how Aeneas establishes his piety. I have, and I think it, it actually came from. Um, reading this book. Not from something witty, I said? Well, that, a secondary tertiary <laughs> at, at best. Um, I think that we're seeing in this book a, um, a shift of sympathy towards Aeneas. Oh, really? And a shift of sympathy away from Turnus. Okay. Where I think we were talking last time in the book 10, I think it's quite the opposite. Yes. So, you know, uh, we see Aeneas kind of in his full rage and doing all kinds of seemingly and arguably unheroic right. things on the battlefield. Now, I think after that killing of Lausus, right. he's kind of snapped out of it. And okay. so to start Book 11 with this very elaborate rit ritual, I was also reading that that um, the, in some ways you could read this passage is that not only is he making a trophy of his killing of Mesentius, but he's honoring Mesentius mm. himself by what he's doing here. Mm. Um, and that's, that's a different kind of Aeneas that we saw in Book 10. Mm -hmm. And then what happens with Turnus later on, his, his countrymen seem to be turning against him. Hmm. And he re he lashes back, and he's kind of all in for the for the rage and the slaughter. Hmm. So I wonder if this is Virgil kind of changing the tone, right, and uh, setting us up for the the end of the epic. Hmm. Um, and so uh, I think this elaborate ritual that we're seeing here is part of Virgil saying, okay, this Aeneas, he's back on track. Okay, he's 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 pious. He's, right, he's pious. He's yep. following all of the rituals. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then there's a 12-day truce declared Yes, for both sides to bury their dead. Right. And um, the first part of Book 11 focuses a lot on the, the funeral procession of Pallas. Mm -hmm. And so this is, a, uh, this is a big deal. And this also, as we'll see, becomes important for uh, interpreting the end of the epic. Okay. So, um, but, you know, elaborate you know, funeral um, uh, procession and pyre. His body's being carried back from the battlefield all the way back to Arcadia. Hmm. Uh, and he chooses a thousand men to accompany the body. Um, there's horses. There's there's trophies from what was won on the battlefield. Um, Pallas's own horse. <laughs> We're is, given the name of the horse. Yes, Ithon. That's right. right. Um, uh, is riderless. Yes. Ithon right. is a gleaming or flashing, I think. Is that what that, I means? I was, what that means? I was blanking on that. Adjective. Yes, I think so. Yep. Um, but Aeneas himself doesn't go. Hmm. He stays behind, and he's uh, is the the reader, the listener would call. Aeneas missed a lot of the battle already, right. hanging back at Arcadia, and so he doesn't go back to see Irvander. He stands here uh, to um, govern the rest of the rituals. So the men move off. Then some thousand men accompanying the uh, body of Pallas back to Arcadia. Yeah, and, and it, we'll get the scene of uh, right. Evander kind of you know, realizing what's happening and receiving re receiving the body of his son. Yeah. In, in just a bit. But Aeneas stays back. Yeah, um, he doesn't go on the funeral procession, the right. journey. 
He has other things to do. He does. And one of the more important things is that these envoys from the Latins come to see him. Mm -hmm. And they, they're the ones who actually request the truce. Yes. So this is the region of Latium. The king is Latinus, just yep. to keep everybody straight on the details. His wife is Amata, or Lovey, right? His daughter Lavinia, who is betrothed now to Aeneas yes. instead of uh, Turnus. Right. So those are the ones that come. Not Rutulians, but Latins. Latins, right. Um, uh, you want to read a bit of Latin here? Yeah, so they, they request a truce, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we get here Aeneas's response um, in just a minute. So this is uh, line 108, lines 108 and following. Quinam vos tanto fortunin digna latini, implicavit bello qui nos fugiatis amicos, pacem mex animiset martis sorta peremptis, ordratis equidet we vis concedere wellem, neque ni nisi fata locum sedem quedidisent, nec bellum cum gentegero rex nostra reliquit, hospiti et turni potius se credidit armis. Nicely done. Thank you. Very deft, deft through those many elisions. Oh, there, there. were many there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like walking through a, you know, a land, uh, what's that called? A minefield. Minefield, yeah. Yes, exactly. Through a minefield. Right. right. So again, I'll give Lombardo's translation in a bit more. All right. Um, uh, this is Aeneas uh, speaking. What undeserved ill fortune lands has entangled you in a war so terrible that you turn away from us, your friends? You request peace for the war dead. Gladly, I would grant it for the living as well. I would never have come had not fate assigned me a home here. Nor am I at war with your people, but with your king, who broke our alliance and trusted instead to Turnus's arms. It would have, been, would have been more just for Turnus himself to face this death. If he wanted to end the war by force and drive out the Trojans, he should have fought with me with these weapons. Only one of us would have lived, whether by heaven's grace or his own strong hand. Go now and place your countrymen on the pyre. Mm. So he's proposing a kind of duomachia, right? A two-man conflict like yes. we see in Iliad 3. Right. Between um, Paris and Menelaus. Right. Um, which ends with, I think it's, it's Pandarus who, who shoots an arrow and can throws the whole thing into chaos. Yes, right? that's right. And then, of course, uh, Aphrodite swoops down, takes Paris off the battlefield, and drops him in uh, Helen's bedroom. Yes. Right? You're too good looking to, you know, to face... <laughs> Uh, the conflict on the field. Too pretty for war. That's correct. One of my favorite visuals from the Iliad is, remember, he's dragging Paris away. That's it's, right. It's the chin strap of his helmet. It's incredible. That is just dragging him. And the yeah. helmet rolls in the dust. Yeah, and then he's gone. And the, the great part about that is when Hector shows up, right, at the door of uh, Helen's bedroom. Where's Where's my cowardly brother? Yes, right. right. He's enraged. Mm -hmm. But then he soon changes his mind because, you know, Paris is the lovable scamp. Nobody can be angry at him. Exactly. Exactly. I thought it was interesting in these lines too. Is I can look how how, how gentle and conciliatory yeah. that uh, Aeneas is. He says, you know, um, what undeserved ill fortune Latins has entangled you in a war so terrible right. that you turn away from us, your friends. Right. You and request peace for the war dead. I would grant it. I would gladly grant it for the living as well. All I want is peace. Right, he says. Now, I mean, that's that is a radically different Aeneas that we saw in the previous book. Well, that's because the killing is over, at least temporarily. Yeah, but it's that it's that shift where uh, again he's shifting from being an Achilles to being kind of a Hector once right. again. Right, and and uh, so I, I like I said, I wonder if this is part of Virgil's his purpose is to present an Aeneas who is more pious more more compassionate yeah. to set up the kind of the end of the epic. Yes, well, because he's a builder of civilization. That's, yeah. that's how he has been presented. Yeah. Maybe what we could say is that the Iliadic elements of the last six books, you know, books 7 through 12, all the warfare and so forth, perhaps Virgil is not as at ease in telling that part of the story as he is with the Odyssean portion. Yeah, I'd buy that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's definitely true. It's just I thought yeah, the um there's a huge seesaw right. between these two books. Yes. Well, well, we'll have to see where this goes. You know, how does this ultimately set up the end or not set up the end? Right. Yeah, well, right, the, right. The, the adventure story, the romance story of the first six books is just an easier story to tell in terms of characterization yeah. than the conflict on the battlefield. Good point. That takes a lot more work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then this guy, this I thought that this interesting character, this, this Drancase. Yes. Who hates Turnus. Mm -hmm. And I'm not exactly sure why, but I think it, it's more that he... He blames Turnus for all of this, and maybe not without good reason. Right. Right. And so he says, "Yeah, yeah, Turnus, this is this is your war. This is your fault. You know. And and like Aeneas said, you should settle it. Go right. fight this guy, and so the rest of us don't have to don't have to suffer. Right. And as I wonder too, if 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 this is true that Virgil wants to kind of turn the audience's opinion against Turnus, are we supposed to kind of start to see him through eyes of of characters like Drancase? 
Or is he more like a Thersites type figure, just kind of grumpy? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. So maybe you're saying we we see Turnus through the eyes of one of his countrymen, uh, Dronkes, so we start to understand that maybe Turnus is driven by his own sense of pride. He's not really the champion of his people yeah. against a foreign invader. Yeah. It's it's not a group effort. It's really just his own grudge. Yes, I think so. And I think the fact that, you know, so even in the, the passage we just read um, where uh, Aeneas says, fate brought me here. Right. right? He didn't even want to do this, but fate brought me here. And that, that pops up a few times. And I wonder if you know, the Latins or even the Bretulians are starting to, re to recognize, you know what? What's the point in fight, fighting somebody who's so right. clearly called by fate? Mm -hmm. And so Turnus's, um, his, his, his demand that he keeps going right. and fighting for his own personal honor, the, the Latins are saying, what's the point? Right. This is now just all about you and, it's, and people are dying. Isn't it inevitable? I think that's an excellent point. Isn't it inevitable that Virgil has to separate Turnus from his supporters eventually because all of those uh, persons on the peninsula will eventually be absorbed into the Roman project. Right, so right. So he's got to start to separate Turnus out as the real barrier to e peace. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right, right. And so, and then we get this, um, I'm getting ahead of things, but this this wonderful report of what uh, um, Diomedes said. Right? So right. Diomedes, the, the, one of the... The Greek villain. The, the Greek villain, who, one of the who fought at Troy, who fought against you know Aeneas, and right. fought against uh, Venus. You know, what he has to say, and um, he too kind of adds his voice to, this is this is a terrible idea. Yeah. Yeah. To resist Aeneas. To resist Aeneas, exactly. Right. Yeah. And speaking of resisting Aeneas, yes. I believe it's time for the ads. All right. This episode of the Ad Nauseam podcast is brought to you by Racial Coffee. Jeff, mm -hmm. let's say it's an early wintry morning. Yes. Moving into late spring. You wake up in the morning and you you were up late the night before finishing grading, maybe watching some of the Netflixes or perhaps reading some great classical literature. Mm -hmm. How are you going to start your day? Well, I'm going to go right to my ratio eight okay. machine. Yes. And in which I will have my uh, hand-blown glass carafe waiting okay. with the silver cone also inside. Nice. I'll grind up some beans, mm -hmm. um, put them in there, and all I do is hit the button and in probably about... Six, seven minutes. It's incredible. I've got the perfect cup of coffee ready to go. Yeah, just enough time to take a shower. Yes, exactly. Just enough time to scrape the snow off the vehicle. That's right. Right? Or maybe yeah. you keep your vehicle in a garage. I do not, actually. Oh, I don't either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you come back, it's ready. It's ready. It takes no oversight, no attention, and it makes a perfect cup of coffee. Yeah. You know what? I, I kind of like, like to hang out in the kitchen while, it, while it's brewing. Yeah. Do you, do you run off? And, are you that efficient that you got, oh, I can accomplish this I, task? I often have too much to do, frankly. Gotcha. So I wouldn't mind hanging around, and sometimes I do. I like the sound it makes, and it's very aromatic, but usually I'm pulled in some other direction. Gotcha. Are you one of those guys that when you wake up, you're just, you are boom, ready to go? I used to be yeah. one of those guys. Now I'm one of another kind of guy, I guess. <laughs> it's called age, Winkle. Is that what so, it is? Yeah. I got you. You see, when I press that button, I'm still, I mean, I haven't had my coffee yet. And so right. where am I going to go? Right. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So you've got the stainless steel version. Am I do. I right. And you were, what's what, yours what again? Kind of, I want to hear about your okay. accents though. Yes. I got uh, the stainless steel with the, the, with the wood accents. Okay. The light wood kind of? The light wood. Yes. Light wood. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful machine. Right. Yep. And, and you, I have the, the oyster color. That's Oyster right. shell. Yep. Uh, with the walnut accent. And you have the, beautiful. the thermal carafe, right? I have the thermal carafe. And the, the genius part of this is, as we've said many times before, not much recently, but the Ratio 8 has no Kindle brick underneath. Exactly right. No hot plate, no scorch pad. Nothing. The, the coffee is heated, you know, in the metallic veins, and then it's deposited into this thermal carafe. You used to like to say you could transport plutonium in this thing. You could. It is so secure. It's a work of it. I have one that's on the way. I'm yes, very that's excited right. And I it's extraordinary how many hours it keeps that coffee piping right. hot. It's, it's amazing. It's really, really good. Yep. It has this nice rubber... Uh, Insert that goes on the top to keep everything. Yep. You've got one of those for your, your hand-blown borosilicate glass carafe. Yes, and, and the uh, the just the the way it pours is mm -hmm. just a, it's just a work of art. Now, are you a cream guy? You cream up the coffee? No, straight black. Straight black. How about you? I, I sometimes like uh, to add some some um, half and half. Yeah. Or some whole and whole, some heavy whipping cream. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Okay. Chew your coffee that definitely, way. Definitely. Definitely. So we've been going on and on about yeah. this. Yep. So, but so if the listener wanted to get one, right. one of the, the ratio eight, like the ones we have, or the, the its younger brother, the ratio six, what should they do? They should go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O, coffee.com, browse the extensive selection of first-rate, world-class machines 
When they have chosen one, they should add in this coupon code. A-N, that's ad nauseum, C-O, coffee, A-N-C-O, nine, Y. And the Y stands for yummy. Is that what, that's what it is yes, this week. Gotcha, yeah. right. A-N-C-O, nine, Y, for the month of March. And they will get what, Jeff? I believe it's 15% off their entire order. 15%. Check it out. This episode of Odd Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. I, I realized today that Hackett Publishing has been around for basically as long as I've been alive. Mm. They're in their 52nd year. So am I. You're in your 52nd year. That's right. Exactly. And what is your shelf life, so to speak? I, I'm not sure, but I know that Hackett has now outlived Virgil as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they've been for all of these years with their offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. They've had... I've been bringing uh, wonderful, digestible, readable, affordable translations of the classics and from many other areas of academia and mm -hmm. history and philosophy from around the world. Um, and they've been bringing them to the public, and uh, I can't say enough about them. I, I love the texts. I use them in my classroom. I use them on, at home. Um, I've got, uh, I think in my trunk, I've got, right. I got, uh, both of those translations of Ovid's Metamorphoses that we use. That was the Lombardo translation. Yeah. Who's the other guy? Just to, um, Ambrose. Ambrose. Yeah. Just to use as a spare tire or what? Is no. that how durable the translation is? Well, it's actually, it's, I have these books, the cluttering the house. Okay. And so my wife for every once in a while will say, do we need that here? Right. Can't you bring that to the office? Put it in the trunk. Put it in the trunk. Perpetually. Yeah. <laughs> bring it there. You used to keep uh, one in the uh, glove box, yes. you told me. Now that's right? stuffed with other uh, okay. other kind of ephemera. But, and uh, I think that you keep one behind glass, right? And it says, uh, in case of emergency, oh, yeah. break the glass yes. and pull out the translation of the... Uh, Metamorphoses. Exactly. It's always good to have on hand. You never know when you're you going to use it. You never know, right. right? Dave, what do you like about uh, uh, well, Hackett? Well, I'm at the website right now, H-A-C-K-E-T-T-Publishing.com, mm -hmm. and I am uh, marveling at the breadth of their selection. Anselm, The Complete Treatises by Thomas Williams. Uh, that guy was on my dissertation committee. Was he really? Yeah. The Scientific Background to Modern Philosophy, Selected Readings uh, by one Michael Matthews. Uh, the Buddha's Teaching as Philosophy, uh, Mark Sideridis, and uh, Cinema for French Conversation. Uh, it looks like uh, Rice is the uh, editor, uh, the author, and Christine Rice of that particular edition. So a lot more than just your Greek and Roman stuff. Oh, it's a lot of stuff. A yep. great breadth of material. Yes. And, uh, so I like that about Hackett. Yeah. And um, I'm often recommending these, not just on the podcast, but to friends and in emails and conversations Check this one out. This is very good. Yes. The complete works of Aristotle coming out. Um, essential Greek historians. They've got so much. Yes. And this this translation of the Aeneid that we've been using from Stanley Lombardo is phenomenal. It is really good. Right. And it's from Hackett. So, um, listener, uh, go do yourself a favor. Go to hackettpublishing.com. Uh, find the text that you want. Drop them in the little grocery satchel. And what's our coupon code there? The coupon code is, first of all, ad nauseum, A-N. And then the current calendar year, which if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. is 2023. I believe you're right about that. So what you need is AN2023. And that will get you 20% off your entire order and free shipping. Check it out. All right, Jeff. Now, as we get back into it, yes. we are going to be treated to more funeral rites. Am oh, I wrong? A lot more. Okay. Rites. I think it's elaborate. Okay. So the kind of stuff, like the kind of stuff that would kind of you know, grind on me earlier. Yes. Now I'm, I'm kind of seeing the purpose and the point. Of okay. It. Okay. Yeah. So you still don't find it necessarily um, aesthetically pleasing. I don't. In the same way that you don't like the catalog of ships. Exactly. But um, you do like the catalog of furniture from Ikea, for example. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah, Allen wrenches. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, so why have you changed your mind then? Be because about... I'm starting to see the literary purpose of it. I think that it, at least in this book, it is Virgil kind of, changing our our opinion of Aeneas mm. and, and the, the more of the more of these rights the more elaborate and detailed they are we say okay he's not the rager on the battlefield anymore he's thinking about the religious correctness of all of that and so rather it's he's rather, a community builder yeah he is and I'm starting to see the purpose of that where before it was like okay okay we get it he's pious already right and uh, so but here it seems to have as as we're kind of you know we're veering towards the end right I think I'm starting to see what he's up to mm-hmm okay that, that that's all that's all, all right yeah so rumor spreads Yes? Yes. About the death of Pallas. Right. And it reaches the Arcadians before the body does. Mm. And so the women are wailing and Evander is completely uh, heartbroken. He gets a really long speech where he, he mourns for his son. It's quite a beautiful, yeah. it's quite a beautiful speech. It's like a motorcade. Yeah. It's, it's on its way. Yeah. Have you noticed the diminution in motorcades? Is it just where we live, West Michigan, this part of the country? 
It seems like when I was much younger, mm -hmm. these were much more uh, frequent sights. You'd be driving down the road, and all of a sudden, you would see a long string of vehicles led by a hearse with the and with the funeral the flags, flags yeah. and you would you know deferentially get out of the way yeah. maybe they don't do that in Los Angeles or Detroit or Boston or other places where it's busy but yeah, you treat it like an like an ambulance is coming yes right? here in the midwest you pull over to the side of the right. road and sometimes there is like a train going by yeah be 30 40 vehicles i can't remember the last time i saw one of those that's a good point i can't either i think maybe the practice has uh, fallen out of use I, possibly. Yeah, you're right. I haven't seen that in, Isn't that in odd? ages. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what's behind that. Huh. Um, is that the sort of thing you hope to have? A motorcade? I yeah. Don't, I don't need a motorcade. Just you don't? A, no. Just a, a small gathering of family and friends, right? No motorcade. And assorted billionaires and celebrities. Maybe people on unicycles? I was going to say, <laughs> I kind of would like one. Would you? Having been a longtime opponent of parades, <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. You are anti-parade. I am right? very anti-parade, <laughs> pomp and circumstance. Right. There'd be a great fitting irony if there's a parade at my funeral, right? <laughs> exactly. Got him at last. Right, exactly. I got to suffer through this now. There's four brass bands. That's right. right. <laughs> I think that that would be pretty good. That would be. Yeah. That would be. The riderless horse detail yes. of, reminds me of... Um, I've seen film from the Kennedy's parade. Mm -hmm. They had the they had the riderless horse kind of to honor mm -hmm. the slain president. Yes. And so there's something very evocative about that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So to um to use an analogy from a president, right? Mm -hmm. To say a, a classics professor and you know scholar like yourself or like me, what would the equivalent be uh, of a riderless horse? Yeah. Would it be like a a lexicon without its dust jacket? <laughs> Yeah, Could exactly. that be it? Exactly. Exactly. Or maybe like a, a pen without its cap or some some something that shows it's out of place. Yeah. There's a vacancy. There's a void. Yes. It's not liminal. It's whatever the opposite of that. Exactly. Is. Or I'm thinking maybe a uh, like a a, uh, a pickup truck that's hauling like an empty lectern. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> or maybe like um, I don't know a, a USB port without a thumb drive. <laughs> There you go. There Something you go. that's real unique to being a professor. I think you, you've thought a lot about your funeral, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's just kind of a pastime of mine. <laughs> just really, really okay. So Evander has this. He's he's um you know obviously uh, deeply saddened, um and he he laments. You know the gods didn't didn't listen uh, to his prayers. Uh, uh, he, you remember Pallas? He warned him. You know, don't you're young. Don't be reckless. And right. Remember that Pallas was the one who, like he, the Daedalus and Icarus speech. Exactly right. right. And we and Pallas indeed he was in in rallying his his troops who didn't want to go into the battle. He runs right into the thick of it. He does right. exactly the opposite of what his father mm -hmm. um, uh, recommended. Yeah, that Daedalus and Icarus. I think that's uh, there's a layer there. Mm -hmm. um, he's happy that his wife wasn't alive to see this. Uh, but this comes almost about face in the middle of his speech where he he says, even so. I don't blame Aeneas. I don't mm. blame the Trojans. I don't regret joining up with these guys. Um, Does and, that surprise you? Well, a little bit. Um, I mean, I think it speaks to uh, Evander's um, level of honor, mm -hmm. and you know that even in that he lost his son, he's dedicated to this to this cause to the program he, to the program that he's that he's signed on to. And he doesn't just throw that all away. I mean, he says not only says is he. Um, you know, still on the Trojan side, he deeply still respects Aeneas, right? Even though he could easily, in some ways, blame him for the death of his own son. Hmm. Now, as a a, a real maven of uh, popular culture, Johnny Pop, like you are, yeah, perhaps you can uh, you can test this hypothesis of mine. I think that it has become almost a trope now that in some you know movie or some book, the person who is on board with the cause, when they have a personal tragedy, mm -hmm. that's when the switch is flipped. And now they become opposed to the cause yes. in a very strident fashion. That's kind of a trope, isn't it? It it's is. Happens again and again. I saw. I you know. I recently in my film class um, showing an example of um, actually the, the op. Well, examples of that, but also the opposite of okay. that. Okay. As we've talked on the air, you've seen Saving Private Ryan. Yes. Right? Yeah, I like that movie and a lot. So you have this this small platoon led by Tom Hanks. Okay. Uh, Captain Miller, who's and their job is to to find this Private Ryan, because mm -hmm. all of his brothers, his three other brothers, have been killed, and so the War Department wants him to come back home, right? So that the family doesn't lose another one. Exactly. Isn't Affleck in that movie? He is not. Matt Damon plays Damon is Private Private he's Ryan. Private Ryan. He's Private Ryan, but Affleck's not in that movie. He's not. Thank goodness. Okay, good. Yes, right. <laughs> so they have to go you know, kind of behind uh, enemy battle lines yes. to find even find this guy. Right. And they lose some of their comrades along the way. Mm. And the guys in the platoon said, 
you know, what are we doing? Right. You know, we, we've we're lo- all going to die to save one man. Exactly. We've lost two. Um, and indeed, most of them do die. Uh, and they're, they're all against us. And there's almost kind of a, a mutiny. But Tom Hanks, you, um, you know, he wrestles with this. But he says, this is the mission. This is what we're doing. We're, gonna, we're bringing Private Ryan home. Um, and there's points in the, in the film where it's very clear that he doesn't know why they're doing that, yeah. but he sticks to the mission okay. to the very end. And I mean, it's a very moving scene at the end where um, the Tom Hanks character, he's mortally wounded. Right. And um, Matt Damon, Private Ryan, comes up to him and his dying words to Private Ryan are, earn this, mm. earn it, you know, make you live a life that's worthy of all these men that have died. Oh, yes. I think I remember now that the movie opens with the Private Ryan character, Damon, at... Um, Arlington Cemetery. His, his old, the, an older version of himself, yes. right? And he, he kind of he drops before the grave of of Miller, the Tom Hanks character. Yes, right? right. Okay. So the genius of that movie or the story is that it examines both types. Yes. Right. Yeah. The type of the person uh, who's turned away from duty by personal tragedy, mm-hmm. and the person who is rededicated by personal, yeah. uh, from personal tragedy yeah. to that, that given duty. Exactly right. And I think I see, I see almost all of that in the Aeneid, right? Well, Evander is the type of the person who hews to uh, duty despite personal tragedy. He is, he's the Hanks character. Okay. Yep. But I think like a, a character like Dronkase, he's yes. like, what are we doing? Right. It, 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 you go, you, you fight for this Turnus. Like if, if you die, it's all on you, yeah. right? Why are we, why are we doing this? Right. right. But he's on the losing side. True. Do you have a sense that one of those two types has more artistic depth or maybe even moral value, you know, to go into a, a deeper direction? Because um, there's, there's something unusual about Evander in this. Yes, exactly. I think that, um, I think sir, I think you're right that it's a trope in more, you know, more contemporary storytelling to... Um, What's more important? It's the feelings of the individual yes. than, so, than the, the bigger picture. Correct. So we yeah. would find it a little bit implausible for someone to suffer as much as Evander has and then say, but you know what? I'm still devoted to the cause. Right. So to our sensibility, that just seems phony in yes. some ways. Yes, exactly right. It's right. switched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it's true. And um, I think, you know, I've been a kind of affected by that kind of that trope in pop culture. Right. I, I remember in, in showing this film to my class, you know, at the end there's a voiceover where the, the war department is writing a letter to the Ryan family. Okay. I don't and, remember that. And it's, it's filled with all these platitudes of um, you know, the great sacrifice that you've made for the country and for the, for the, for the freedom. And um, you know, on, on the one level, I, I get it. And I, and I recognize the honor, but on the other hand, it's, it's hard. It sounds so, Cliche, jingoistic, jingoistic. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you know, the movie came out in what was it, late nineties, ninety eight, ninety eight. Mm-hmm. So that had more purchase, maybe then. I think so. Than today, right? And and so, yeah, I think it did because and I also noticed kind of the Spielberg. Here come the sweeping violins to kind of you know to right. to kind of push you over the edge to tell us emotionally what we're how we're supposed to exactly respond. right. And I, and I thought, okay, this is an excellent movie, but it's also very manipulative at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, and I, I don't, I don't remember feeling like that when I saw it in the theaters 25 no. years ago. No, right? well, but you were much younger. I was. Right. Maybe not as astute. Or as cynical. Yeah, well, <laughs> could be. Yeah. But no, that, but I think that those themes. Right. That I think with the, the themes that that film plays with in, in, uh, deals with in a really interesting and deep yes. fashion. I see it all over the Aeneid. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe with respect to Evander, it's just much harder to portray a character uh, who is not deflected from duty by personal tragedy yeah and to make it plausible yes maybe that's why it's done less frequently i think that's i, I think that's know. true i think that's really true right and so at the end of that you know evander reveals that he says you know um what i want um Aeneas, you know i respect you i honor you but what i want is i want turnus dead yeah he wants his revenge and he wants it to come from aeneas's hand right so in terms of a plot point this is steering the the epic towards the way it it uh, it literally ends. Yes, we're yep. accelerating to the end. Mm-hmm. So then we get this uh, cinematic scene, right? Yes. Multiple funeral pyres burning on the shore. Yeah, it's very very vivid, very evocative. It's what, again, it's one of these things that I think Virgil does uh, so much better than Homer. Really, I think even so. better than Homer. I think so. I think so. Um, we, we've 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 called attention to so many scenes like this where. Like it's if the camera pans back. And yeah, it's it, it, imprinted it, on your mind. It is. So you have these, um, yeah, these pyres burning on the shore, and and then again more of these intric- intricacies of ritual, riding on horseback around the pyre three mm-hmm. times, 
Um, these trophies of war thrown into the fire with the burning bodies. There's the sacrifice of cattle and pigs. Uh, the men keeping an all-day vigil. Um, yeah, and it kind of reminded me of of how the Iliad ends yep. with, the, with the funeral of Hector. But no athletics here, am I right? No games, no. no. We, we had those for Anchises. Yes, in right? book five. And yeah. we have them, we have funeral games in the Iliad, right? It's true, yeah. Uh, book 20, 23, I, I think it for is. For Patroclus. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's, that, I didn't even I didn't even think about that, but yeah, they're noticeably, no games. They're noticeably absent here, yeah. Hmm. And I guess that's because it's mid-war? I don't know. I guess so. Doesn't really follow with the Iliad. Right. And so that's that's on the the Trojan side of things. Um, the Latins follow suit. They're going to bury their own dead, mourn their own dead. Exactly right. And one thing that struck me, I, I don't know if this is 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 worth making a a serious point of, but uh, Virgil tells us that they also burn their dead, but they kind of pile them in a mass grave. Yeah. And whereas it's the the rites on the Trojan side are much more individual, much more elaborate. Right. And I wonder if 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 Virgil's suggesting see, uh, Aeneas has something to teach these people. So part of the civilizing process he's going to bring yes. is how to bury one's dead How property. to bury the dead and how to do this, how to do these kinds of rituals. Yeah, a person was mocking me recently for thinking about my own funeral quite a bit. <laughs> Who was that? I don't know. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. But that's kind of the motivation, mm. right? You mm. know, you, you want to have a, a death that's beautiful, right? Hothanatos mm. Coloss. Yeah. Now, I think that that for the Greeks means you die in a beautiful fashion. Mm. Uh, it's less about the burial than the way in which your, end, your right, life ends. Right, 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 right. But yeah. the, the burial deserves a little bit of attention. Absolutely, right. I think, I think that's that's also something I, I think that our contemporary modern secular society has lost is kind of the importance of ritual. Correct. Right. And, and uh, you got to carry that through all the way to the end. All the way to the end, yeah. It's like a scaffolding that helps your emotions go along. Yeah. You, you don't, in, in difficult times, you don't want to have no scaffolding for your emotions. Yes. You want to have something there to provide structure when... There doesn't seem to be much. Very well said. Thank Very you. Very well said. So the Latins, they can learn something yes. from uh, Aeneas and the Trojans about how to bury their dead. Right. And I think it's another one of these places in the book where, again, Virgil's saying, see, this, the Trojans are the ones who are fated. They're the ones who are who really have something to offer. They're not just right. the, the, the bloody invaders who are no. uh, conquering for the sake of conquering. Right. Right. And now we pause for a word from Diomedes. Right. I thought this was interesting that they we don't get the scene... Uh, with you know, Dionysus isn't on stage, so yeah. to speak. It's it's a it's a messenger kind of bring it back. And I was mm -hmm. curious. I mean, why do you think Virgil did that? I mean, why not? Why not have kind of a star turn? This 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 cameo. Diomedes. I was going to say, isn't this like the cameo, right? Yeah, but it's told through a messenger speech. Yeah, and I guess because he's not supposed to eclipse. Um, he's not supposed hmm. to eclipse Aeneas. For uh, for some of these things, maybe there's not really an answer at all. Uh, yeah. It's just kind of the choice that Virgil made and. He was thinking of later classicists, you know, these people need something to write their dissertations about. Right. I got to leave a lot of uh, loose ends, a lot of things untied, or they're not going to have a job. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Reminds me of, um, I was watching a documentary on Bob Dylan oh, yeah. a while back, and there's footage of him. He's still alive, right? He is. He's, okay. a, uh, he's, he's 80 now and so okay. he's an old man but in this in this there was uh film clips of him as a very young man where he was like his star had just kind of exploded right and he's in a hotel and he's typing out lyrics on a typewriter and i think it's joan baez who's in there and like, pulls a sheet and kind of reads it out loud and you know, dylan lyrics can be a little bit thick and kind of right. and and she asks him she says you know bobby says what does this mean and he, he says something like i have no idea but people are going to write books about it <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> True story. Yeah. Or something along those lines. It's like, it's, it's like Dylan even knew that the more obscure that he could be, oh, yeah. people are going to, this must mean something deep. Yeah. Well, you right? first have to establish a reputation for depth and then you can say whatever you want. Exactly. And I think that he was kind of, um, yeah. almost kind of you know, uh, satirizing himself sure. at that point. Right? But Virgil's not really there no. in the same way. No, 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 no. That's Virgil has a, you know, narrative for one thing. <laughs> exactly right. So he yeah. comes back, a messenger comes back with a message for the, for Latinus. Mm -hmm. Right, the king of the Latins, and it is what? Well, they had, they had appealed to Diomedes and say, hey, come help us. Right. You know, come be on our side. And Diomedes says, uh-uh, not going to do this. And so, um, should we refresh the, the audience? So Diomedes, yes. is, he was a Greek. That's right. He, he fought, we see him in the Iliad. He has his moment of Aristea. Yes, book six. His epithet is Boenagathon, good at the war cry. That's right, yeah. That's a great epithet. It is. He's the guy who's on the battlefield. He can really belt it out. Exactly, right. right. No matter where he is, you can hear him, uh, you know, 
full voice on pitch Boeing Agathon. Yeah, think about Dami doing karaoke. Exactly. That's what I was thinking, <laughs> right? He's like the Robert Plant there of the go. battlefield. Exactly. It's a howl. Yeah, yeah. or um, <laughs> Axel Rose. Yes. Someone who has a, a voice like a reed. Exactly. Right? It's not really a human voice. It's like a Yes. A reed. Exactly so, right. Exactly right. That's Diomedes, good at the war cry. Right. And possibly, uh, I think he's third in order uh, in terms of prowess. It mm. goes Achilles, Ajax, Telamon, and, and Diomedes then, is then third. Diomedes. That's right. Right. So he's no slouch. No slouch. Right. And so he kind of gives a, a mini recap of what happened to him and what happened uh, at the Trojan War what, and what uh, happened afterwards. And via he, messenger. Via messenger. Um, and he says, yeah, we won the war. Uh, but it was a, a Pyrrhic victory. Right. And so he says, look what happened to everybody. Ooh, nice anachronism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Diomedes calls it a Pyrrhic victory. Pyrrhus isn't going to be born for a thousand years. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Right. Um, he says, look, Agamemnon's dead, murdered when we got home. Odysseus is off wandering. He's meeting beasts like the Cyclops. Menelaus and Helen got blown off. Of course, they're lost. Took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Right. Exactly. He says, I lost my, I lost my wife, um, which is... He connects this to, you know, he remember he wounded Aphrodite Venus on the battlefield. Right. And so she gets her revenge. Punishment. She, right. And then his men turned into birds and scattered. I mean, that's a horrible thing to happen. Yeah. Right. So he says, he says, I am not touching this again. And so I think, you know, of course, Aeneas's connection to Venus. She's Venus's, he's Venus's son. Right. Says, I'm not messing with this goddess again. I'm not messing with, with her son. I saw what he could do on the battlefield. You don't know who you're dealing with. Right. Um, my advice, he says, uh, make peace, join him. Yeah. If they had one more guy like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. One more guy like this, the Trojans would have won. Yeah. He says, with Hector and Aeneas, they they almost warded right. us off. If one more guy, it would have been a different story. I think he's puffing Aeneas up a little bit. A, a little bit. There yes. are some there are some mentions in the Iliad. We talked about this at the very beginning of this long Odyssey through the Aeneid, about how um, Homer tells us some great things about Aeneas's prowess, but he's still a fairly minor character. Yes, in the Iliad. Exactly, exactly right. So yeah, there's there's a there's more than a little uh, mm -hmm. puffing up here. Right, right. So when the assembly hears this, there's lots of harumphing going on. Right. Well, what, what should we do about this? Right. right. Um, and uh, there's a really nice um, uh, uh, simile here. An epic simile. I'm a little bit more Latin. I'd love that. Yes. Here we go. This is line two ninety six and following. Weeks a legati warriusque perora cucurdret, aus onidum turbata fremor cal saxa morantur, cum rapidos amnes fit clauso, grugata murmur, wiki nai quefermunt repi crepitante bosundis. Nice. A little bit of internal rhyme there. Did you hear that? What, where, where was it? Wiki nai quefermunt repi. Nice. I like that internal rhyme Excellent. That, that Virgil has. And Lombardo. The envoys had just finished when, the tro when troubled murmurs rippled through the Ausonian assembly. Like the sound that comes from a pent-up stream that has been blocked by boulders, the current churns, and the close banks echo the rushing water. Nice. Isn't that great? That, yeah. That brings that harumphing alive. Yeah, so that, yeah. that simile then is a, a pent-up stream blocked by boulders, mm -hmm. right? And then what happens? And then, so Latinus... The, the water, I'm saying... The, oh, sorry, sorry. In, in the simile, the yeah. water breaks through. Right. That makes that churning, squishing sound. Right. I think we can, we can all hear that in our heads. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Latinus comes to the conclusion, um, he agrees with, with Diomedes. This is a bad idea. Right. And even says things like, you know, we are fighting with gods. I mean, that's, I mean, the, is um, some puffing up there. Well, Aeneas yeah. is the son well, of Venus. I guess so. so. He's a demigod. I guess so. Uh, what, one of the things that I thought was kind of puzzling is that uh, he he folds pretty quickly. Mm. And if we look at kind of the the the, the battle in book 10, it's, so far it strikes me it, it's pretty much a stalemate. I mean, mm -hmm. Nobody's really kind of seriously advancing on the other, right? No. So um, there's no really evidence like the, this Trojan victory is inevitable. No. But maybe it's this idea, this kind of this um, this notion that, well, no, fate's on his side and what's the point of fighting against um, his fate? Is, is that what's going on? Is that yeah. why Latinus just kind of folds up? Um, or is Virgil feeling like he's got he's got to wrap this story up? He's got, yeah. He's almost to book twelve. I don't know. Maybe his editor gave him a word count. Right. He's <laughs> right. dangerously going over. Right. Right. Or right. The, the illustrator had only been hired for the first eleven books. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Who's going to draw the scenes for book twelve? Yes. Yes. And then Dronkes. He comes again. Drances. Dronkes appears on the scene. Guns blazing. Right. And he's he's with he's with Latinus, and he says, "Yeah." In case you didn't. Mm -hmm. Read it a few lines ago. Turnus is the problem. Right. And he mocks him 
Farturnus kind of, uh, remember he was lured onto the ship. That's right. And, and taken up the coast. Yep. So Dronkes interprets that, you, you, you're running away. You're kind of a loser. This is your problem. Right. And you're running away in the middle of Turn it. Turn and face it. Right. So why should, and and I thought this was kind of an interesting, again, kind of recap of, of, the, of the Trojan War. Like, you know, why should all these people die? Because of your relationship problems, right. right? You've lost your you've lost your bride. So Turnus is kind of playing the Menelaus role, yes, here, right? Sulky, um, kind of sulky. Yes. Why doesn't everyone uh, join my cause for my personal gripe? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And so, and again, he re- 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 reiterates this theme: be a man, settle this yourself. Go meet Aeneas in combat because you're the you're really the only two that have a, a beef here, right? Right. So. Where does this portion of the uh, the book end? About halfway through, what is Turnus's response? Oh, and th- I think this, this is where we see uh, can Turnus really shedding any kind of Hectorness that he had. Okay, Mo- so no more nobility. No, which we saw in uh, in book ten. Right, right. And so here he just lashes back, and he mocks Drancas and says, "You know, when you have enough trophies on the battlefield, or you have as many as then you can speak." And see, and Turnus frames it. So he's pulling rank. He's, on pu- him, he's pulling rank, and he's also saying. Um, what makes me a worthy warrior? What makes me better than you, Drunkis? Look how many people I've killed. Yeah, it's an ad hominem. Yes. Basically what it is. Yep. My argument is is good because you're not as good as I am. Yes, exactly End right. End of discussion. Right, and then he even uses language like, you know, he says, I want to see, you know, the Tiber River choked with Trojan blood and bodies, mm. which is... A, Just like the Scamander. The Scamander, right, mm-hmm. which is choked with bodies that you know, at the height of Achilles' yes. mad rage in the Iliad. Back right? in Troy. So this shows Turnus... As not a team player, no. not fighting for the fortunes of his country, he can't make an appeal to patriotism. This is just personal peak. Personal peak. It, it, he sees that it's all about kind of defending this honor that he's lost. Right. So he wants the Trojans' uh, bodies in the Tiber. He wants all the Arcadians dead. Um, and but then he he even says too, like, why are we giving up so easily? Mm. Right. No. Where so, are the, so now he makes a heroic turn. Well, I think I think he. I mean, he's still. I think he's in his full rage. But um, I think he kind of has a point here. He says, you know, where are, you know, where are the men of valor? I think he's recognized like, what we were just saying about Book 10. There's no real evidence on the ground that the Trojans are winning this battle. No, it's a stalemate. It's a stalemate. So so why are we folding right now? And so right. he, and he tries to shame the men uh, back into this. Um, and But I, I wonder, I mean, there, I mean, I think there are aspects of in, in the Greek tradition that right. even in the face of an inev- inevitable fate, there is honor in... At least fighting back. Yeah, you got to see it through. We've talked about this many times, yeah, right? Yeah. We've talked about this specifically with respect to Juno in this play, in this uh, epic. Yeah, excuse yeah, me. Yeah. She knows it's lost, but she's going to make it as difficult as possible for Venus and her son to succeed. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. So I think he, he makes some some valid points here. Right. But um, the rug has been pulled out from underneath. Yeah. But Camilla's on her way. She is. And right. she could rally the troops. There's still some hope. Right. Maybe Turnus shouldn't throw in the towel completely. Exactly. He makes this point. He says the Volscians are on our side. And right. uh, when you get the Volscians, you get Camilla. That's correct. So let's just hang in there for a little bit. And maybe we can do it. Uh, but he says, if I have to meet Aeneas one-on-one. Bring it on. Yep. Yep. He says, I, if, I, if that's what it comes down to, he's willing to do that too. And as we'll see, that's what it comes down yes, to. Yes. He gets his wish, doesn't he? He does. In book 12. Well, Jeff, I think we got to get out of here. We do. I think that, that's, that's a pretty good cliffhanger. It is a good Camilla place Camilla is end. on the horizon. That's yes. correct. Coming on her horse, running across the fields of, yes. of grass. She's so fast. Yes. And across the water itself. But uh, that's for next time. So we got to get out of here. Um, Dave, say a bit about the, the Moss Method and LPSI, would you? That's right. So if you want to learn Greek with me and uh, you want to go from neophyte to erudite, mm-hmm. you can sign up for my course, the Moss Method for Greek, divided into four modules, takes you from little or no knowledge of Greek, uh, or sometimes it's good for seminary students and those who have left seminary. I have quite a few seminarians and pastors uh, who've taken their Greek, but they want to keep it sharp yeah. for their work. This is a great way. Uh, to refresh and expand your skills. So go to mossmethod.com, check out the free resources I have, uh, and then consider signing up for the course. You can join us for weekly Moffice hours. Fantastic. That's every Friday, I believe? Every Friday, that's right. We get together, we talk about Greek. Uh, We've been reading some of these very heroic stories um, from various readers and sometimes from original authors. It's a good time. Fantastic. And how how about LPSI? Yes. So I have a um, a matching Latin program that uses uh, Hans Orberg's famous book, Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, to teach you how to read, write, and speak Latin. And uh, this course is also video-based. You get to witness me teaching three other, sometimes four other lively and engaged students. 33 instructional videos 
in that program, plus weekly office hours, lots of assignments. And as I've said before, there may be a better program. I can't say it would be immodest to claim mine is best, but I'm pretty confident there isn't a better value in terms of what you get for your money. So I give a lot of material at a very reasonable price. And they can find this at latinperdiem.com? That's correct, slash L-L-P-S-I. Excellent. Please check that out. Whom do we need to thank, Jeff? As always, the wonderful Mishka, our intrepid engineer. Um, thanks to Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music and that blistering guitar that you mm-hmm. hear throughout the episode. So, yeah. yeah. Check out their programs if you want to learn to play guitar or sing better than anyone else. That's true. They have uh, programs available. Jeff, what are we doing um, next week? Um, oh, let's finish up book 11. Finish up book 11? Yep, yep. And then we're going on to Tarzan and Tradition yes. before book 12. That's there we gonna go. That's going to be exciting. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. If you'd like to pick up a t-shirt, mm-hmm. you'd like to leave us a nice review at Spotify or Apple iTunes, we would be so appreciative. Yes. Uh, go to uh, adnauseum.com, our Lurch with Merch section, and pick out for yourself a nice um, themed t-shirt with the black and the red Hercules holding up the world or fighting the Nemean lion. Mm-hmm. Nice little Latin tag, quae nocent docent. Yes, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's correct. Or you can send us uh, an email, a message. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. You can write to jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Yes, or you can write to Dave. Dave at adnauseum.com. Again, don't forget that V. I think that just about wraps everything up except for the... the- the gustatory parting shot. That's correct. And it's yours this week, Dr. Wink. It is. And this comes from the incomparable Bill Murray. Yes. Who said, every pizza is a personal pizza if you try hard and believe in yourself. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know what I love it. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.